Welcome back to the Women in Marvel podcast where we assemble to chat all things Marvel and more. It's Judy. It's Anna. Hey guys. And as we've been talking about uh, for the last few weeks, we are celebrating the 80th anniversary of Marvel Comics. And today is our first big episode. And we're really excited to be joined again by the most amazing Trina Robbins. We had a great conversation with Trina this time. We also had another conversation with her a couple of years ago. So it was great to bring her back and talk a little bit more in depth about her contribution to comics. Um, she's a historic, she's a herstorian, I should say a comics herstorian, and uh, a cartoonist, writer. She's been in the industry for so long and ha- is such a great resource of knowledge for what has happened in comics, but specifically around female characters and female cartoonists and creators over the time. And I also love crediting Trina for the idea that the recent wave of women in comics is a return to comics. It's not a new thing. So the topic we tackled with Trina was all about the golden age, uh, which is sort of the the boom of comics from the 1940s into the 1950s, and specifically highlighting the 1950s, including a line that we produced called Girl Comics. We also had other lines of content that was catered towards female audience, romance comics, teen-friendly comics, but just stories that Marvel believed would be amenable to female audiences. And that's actually when uh, characters like Miss America and Patsy Walker and Millie the Model also became very, very popular. Um, And those are characters we talk a little bit more on the podcast, but who are incredibly important to our Marvel history and also who are still very important characters um, within sort of the Marvel pantheon, if you will. And those characters in particular are some of Trina's favorites. And she talks a little bit more about the history of those characters and a little bit more about her involvement in comics, how she got into it, and um, how she became a creator herself. This is a very special episode because we have Trina Robbins with us. She knows everything there is to know about comics, and we are very, very lucky that Trina is here. Welcome, Trina. Thank you, but I only know everything there is to know about comics as they pertain to women. Uh, well, that's the most important kind of knowledge yes, we exactly. think here at the Women of Marvel. I mean, also, it's it's so important that someone like you, Trina, is doing this because it's it's kind of a history that's gotten lost in you know over time. Totally lost. And you have been sort of at the forefront of not only just looking up, researching, gathering all that information, but just presenting it to the world and writing books about it. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and and how you got into this? Well, gee whiz. I mean, if we're going to start, well, I'm four years old and my mother teaches me to read. Love it. Tell us everything. Yeah, she <laughs> was, my mother was a second grade school teacher. And when I was four, she decided I was old enough to read. And so she taught me. And that's the greatest gift anyone ever gave me. You know, it sounds like such a cliche, but it opened a world to me, a whole world. And I never stopped. Mm-hmm. My parents were very liberal and they didn't mind what I read, I read all the books in the world, and I also read comics. They didn't mind that I read comics. In those days, as you may know, there were a lot of parents who disapproved of comics. They were supposed to be bad for you and turn kids into little juvenile delinquents. And, but I was not a little juvenile delinquent. So I always read comics, and I used to draw and write comics. Very, very simple stuff. I was very young, but my mother because I was also always drawing. My mother would bring me home from school just 
tons of Board of Education eight and a half by 11 pieces of paper. I would fold them in half and I would have a four page comic. And I would just start at the beginning and keep drawing, penciling. Did you just teach yourself? You just said, I'm going to make a comic and you made it? Did oh, you yeah. Just study it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's great. And what was it that drew you specifically to that medium? I think the combination of words and pictures. How can you go wrong with words and pictures? And then from there, so I guess you grew up, decided to like study comics for a living, or is this something that you stumbled upon? I stumbled upon it, really. You know, when I turned 13, when I, I was in high school at 13, my mother said, you're a teenager now. Comics are kid stuff. You don't really need that stuff anymore. And I was very obedient. She didn't forbid me, but she just said it. I was a very obedient little girl, so I gave away my priceless comic collection <laughs> to the neighborhood kids, you oh, know, no. thousands of dollars worth of comics. And I didn't read comics again. Well, there were exceptions. I read Mad, of course. How could you not read Mad? <laughs> um, so really, I didn't read comics again until the Mar- Marvel Renaissance of the middle 60s, when at that point, hippies and college students were discovering Marvel. And, you know, I was a hippie. So, <laughs> so Marvel superheroes, you know. So what was it, what specifically at Marvel did you get into? Well, they were different. Mm -hmm. They were, you know, everyone says this. I'm just going to repeat what everyone else says. They weren't like your run-of-the-mill superheroes. I Mm -hmm. mean, they had problems. Peter Parker was a bullied kid. Bruce Banner can't control himself and turns into the Hulk. and, And it was new and different. We thought it was great, us hippies and college kids. You had mentioned this before, and we've and we've talked to you on the podcast before, and this was a while ago. But this idea of comics being a place that is like quote unquote new to women that people say this all the time, and I know you hate that. Yes. <laughs> so you're like women were always reading comics, and there was always comics for them. Can you give us a little bit before we kind of dive into the Marvel history? It'd be great to hear a little bit about the history of female readership in comics, but specifically, maybe just broadly, more about... Before there were even comic books, when comics only appeared in newspapers, girls were reading comics. Girls and women have always read comics. There were certain outstanding women artists, like Nell Brinkley, who was a superstar. She was a superstar. She appeared in the newspapers. This was when comics only ran in papers. Girls used to cut her pages out, her art out, and paste them in scrapbooks. They adored her. Rose O'Neill is another one who created the Cupies, and they ran in comics, and she had huge fans, and I think that she had male fans too, but I think in both cases, uh, Rose O'Neill and Nell Brinkley, the majority of their fans were female. And when was this? This was in the 40s? Oh, no. We're talking about the teens and the 20s. Wow. I mean, do you think it was the climate of the time of like the late 40s going into 50s, why women didn't read comics? I'm using quotations. Women were still reading comics in the late 40s going into the 50s. When it all stopped was the late 60s and the 70s. There were tons. Gosh, all those teenage comics for girls in the late 40s. Hold on. Yes. We have visual art that uh, Trina was gracious enough to send us, and we're going to post it uh, on Marvel.com. Look at this. Look at this. This is an ad 
in what was then Timely Comics, which became Marvel. Tops for teen reading. Look at all these titles they're advertising. Junior Miss, Patsy Walker, Miss America, Teen, Willie, Cindy, Georgie, Jean, Gay, Oscar, Frankie, Rusty, Tessie, Millie, wow. Nellie. These were all girls' comics. Wow. Even though the ones with yeah. boy titles, boys read them, but mostly girls read them. Wow. I mean, there were so many comics for girls. And this is from the late 40s. So how do we get to this? Like, how do we get from girls reading, you know, cartoons in the Sunday newspaper to a physical book? Well, eventually, comics started appearing in comic books as well as newspaper strips. I really don't know his name. Was it Donenfeld? Somebody like that who had, he had a printing press. And he said, hey, I can print comics. You know, it was as simple as that. Yeah. In the beginning, they were just reprints from the newspaper strips. Yeah. And soon there was such a demand because people really liked it yeah. that they started doing their own comics yeah. and publishing them. And among them were girls' comics, always, from the very beginning, 1944. Well, let's let's talk a bit about, bit about that. Like, let's talk about sort of the beginning of comics for girls within the Marvel landscape. What was the first Marvel female character that gained popularity? The very yeah. first was Miss America magazine, and that yeah. was a magazine format for girls that included comics. And one of the comics was Miss America, who was a teenage superheroine drawn by Pauline Loth, and the other was Patsy Walker, the first Marvel teenage character. She was drawn by both Pauline Loth and Christopher Rule, who is wonderful. He's one of my favorite artists. And we're saying starting okay. in 1944 here. Okay, this is an early one of the first Patsy Walkers. The artist is Christopher Rule. This is great. So we're we're actually looking at classic comics images, which is always really really fun to look at. Now, I mean, why don't we talk a little bit just about the visuals here of like this particular kind of look? What was the idea for the visuals for a Patsy Walker or Miss America? Were they trying to fulfill a particular kind of ideal of what America looked like? What was the messaging, you think? Well, she was definitely supposed to be a typical American teenager. Mm -hmm. um, teenagers, you know, in the very early days of the 20th century and in the 19th century, there wasn't a whole thing with teenagers. Basically, you got out of high school and you, you went to work. They didn't think in terms of teenagers. At 18, you could go to war. At 17, you could get married and have babies. America needed to have a little more leisure time in order to have teenagers. So teenagers became a big thing, really, I would say in the late 30s, mm. early 40s. Was there any sense of like what was happening in the country at the time with people being at war? And what was the relation between comics? And um, you'll find in the Patsy Walkers that there is... You know, she'll have a handsome uncle who's a lieutenant overseas and who comes home and he's so brave and, and she'll get a crush on him. Um, <laughs> but mostly it's it's the teenagers themselves interacting. Mm. Um, you know, very light, light comedy, of course, romance. There's always the boy they all like. Mm -hmm. This, by the way, is Ruth Atkinson. Can you actually tell us a little bit about yeah. Ruth? Ruth Atkinson. She did not draw the first Patsy Walker. First Patsy Walker was Christopher Rule and Pauline Loth, but they appeared in Miss America magazine. But Ruth Atkinson drew the whole first year of Patsy Walker comics, the comic book. 
and just so you guys are aware, we're going to talk a bit about girl comics. We actually uh, did a spotlight on Ruth in our girl comics collection a few years ago. And I actually discovered Ruth because of you, (laughs) Trina, because of all the research that you did. I wanted to know a bit more about what was the difference between the comics that started around the 40s and then kind of getting into the 50s? Was there a distinction in the type of content and the type of characters that were coming out? Not really. Uh, that, by the way, is the first, really, the model. And you can see that it's autographed by Ruth Atkinson. Oh, wow. No, there was no distinction between the 40s and the 50s. The teenagers were still having light, peppy adventures and romances. Mm-hmm. Teen comics in the 50s were really very nice, very very imaginative and peppy. Um, now, Patsy Walker, the comic book that was drawn by Ruth Atkinson, there would be four separate stories in them. Three of them would be drawn by Ruth Atkinson, and one of them was always drawn by Fran Hopper. That's Fran Hopper. Oh, wow. So you see, in the beginning, it, was, it wasn't it was literally all women, but it was a majority of women working on these comics. Mm-hmm. I think that one difference between the 40s and 50s is that the boys came home from the war, and all these women who'd been drawing the comics were sent back to the kitchen. Oh. But the comics remained just active and peppy and cute and funny. Now this, this is by a man, but it's still, this is from the 50s, and it's still, look how active it is. Mm-hmm. Look, how, look at the fun. Look how she screeches to a stop mm-hmm. there. Look how she's running. I mean, it's really cute. It's really cute. It, it's funny because we really try to go back to this look for us to kind of get that sense of nostalgia and a simpler time. Drawing comics like this is pretty... It's pretty coveted. I, I love this look. I love this style. Were there any prominent, are there any prominent creators that we can talk about in the 1950s that came to be? Um, they were all men by the 50s. So Ruth and them, were they just stopped working? Oh, yeah, yeah. A lot of them went on to, uh, to romance comics and did draw romance comics. Okay. Um, but that didn't last either because the guys had come back from war and needed their jobs back. It was as simple as that. So they gave the work to the boys. Wow. And then you also wrote something called the Great Women Superheroes, Yes, right? I did. I wrote one book on women superheroes. Can you tell us about that? Well, I just felt that it should be written, yeah. you know, because as usual, when guys write books on comics, they usually are just more interested in Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. Mm-hmm. That's true. What did you learn from that entire process? You know, there were some great superheroines. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact is that by the 60s, the Marvel Renaissance, the women characters and the women artists fell by the wayside. And the women superheroes of the 60s and early 70s are totally wimpy in Marvel comics, you know. The, the little bit of my research that I looked into was that the Renaissance, as we call it, is because in the 50s, comics were becoming less and less sold. You know, was it just something where girls sort of just stopped reading like were they just not interested anymore was there just not a product for them to buy it wasn't that comics were less and less sold it was that superhero comics were less and less sold there were still tons of girl comics and tons of romance comics were huge in the 50s but superhero comics were getting less and less after the war i think that a lot of the original readers of superhero comics, which were young men, they had seen plenty of action. <laughs> and they didn't want any action. They wanted a, a rest from that action. 
And I also want to say for readers out there, when you think of girl comics, I feel like there's some thoughts, but it was a wide variety of options for young girls and women to read. There was action, there was romance, there was comedy. And the important part was they all featured a female lead. Yes, yes. When it comes to action, yeah, there was. I mean, Miss America was a teenage superheroine who started in 1944. There weren't as many action comics that the girls read. There weren't as many superheroines. The -hmm. girls mostly read the teen comics, later the love comics, the comedy ones, of course. Was there a sense that, that women wanted only a certain genre? Like girls and women only wanted romance comics or or even just comedy? Or was there no concept of the fact that they actually wanted? I don't think girls yeah. and women did want superheroes. I don't think they were interested. They want to see pretty girls and handsome boys in, in cute clothes having adventures. Mm-hmm. But not the adventures where they dress up in stretch in spandex. Costumes in spandex. <laughs> well, spandex didn't exist back then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was just it was just cotton that would probably shrink in the well, wash. Which so. Owen also would kind of you know get all baggy. Right. Yeah. Well, for me now too, like I look at some of the content, and I actually don't necessarily want to see a bunch of guys beating each other up, but I do like action. I do like the battle scenes. But at the end of the day, I, I need to know like what those character relationships are and the dynamics of them. That's really what gets me hooked into. Well, any type of story, but with a superhero story. Because if it doesn't have that grounding, I just can't get into it. I mean, that's fundamentally, I think, where where Marvel's strength is, is because they have that dimensionality with their characters. So in my researching women in comics back in the day, I don't know any, I don't know even a small percentage of what you know. But I discovered someone named June Tarp Mills. Tarpe. Tarpe Mills. She technically was one of the first women working at Marvel, can you tell us a little bit about June and, and who is June Mills? She always called herself Tarpe. She called herself Tarpe, I mean, that really? Was okay. her name. Okay. That was the name she gave herself. You okay. know. Was it true that she didn't want people to know she was a woman? In drawing, the beginning, right? yes. Yeah. She changed her name. Tarpe was a family name. Okay. So, you know, it's not like she made it up out of whole hog. In the beginning, because she'd started drawing superheroes for comic books, adventure comics, she actually is quoted as saying that she didn't think boys would like it in these stories that had, you know, male superheroes that, that they would like to know that it was drawn by a woman. But when she started drawing Miss Fury, she became very famous. And they wrote about her in newspapers and everyone knew it was drawn by a woman. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And she also, of course, Miss Fury looked like her. There have been a number of examples of women putting themselves in their comics. Mm. Guys don't seem to do that. But women do. And Miss Fury really did look like Tarpey Mills. Mm. She even gave Miss Fury her cat. Tarpey Mills had a white Persian cat named Perry Purr. So Miss Fury had a white Persian cat named Perry Purr. She was very striking. Oh, beautiful. Very Absolutely striking. beautiful. For me, the Miss Fury comics are very, they're very film noir, you know. Mm. But they have these women in gorgeous evening gowns and fabulous 1940s clothes and really interesting you know, handsome but deadly guys like General Bruno, you know? <laughs> so we talked a little bit about action comics uh, for girl comics, but also romance was such a huge element. And you brought us such amazing art of these iconic romance. But, like, what was it about romance that you love so much, Trina? Well, the art, to start with, is really a lot of fun. I mean, because it's something written for women. And in the early ones, were even drawn by women. So it's pretty. It's women in cute clothes, 
really, if you look at manga, it's the same thing. It's why girls liked manga and still do so much. It's girls in cute clothes having adventures. But the ones that I've brought to show are really unusual ones. I mean, fact is, by the 60s, they became very stereotyped. The art was gorgeous, but they became very stereotyped. But in the 50s, they really, they break the mold. Like there's the one where she's engaged to this actor, but he keeps, you know, he's bought her an engagement ring, a diamond, but he can't make any money. He keeps losing jobs, even though he's so romantic and handsome. And meanwhile, in the background is her friend, this guy with glasses, who she just ignores. And finally, the guy with glasses punches out the actor and says, I've had enough of this. And in the end, she says, she says, well, you know what? I did get married after all. And Bruce, the name of the actor, Bruce did get some money. But then it turns out that she married the guy with the glasses. And the way Bruce got money was he sold the engagement ring that she had returned to him. So this is, you know, this is such a turnaround, and it's not what you expect. There's another one that I brought where she goes to work for UNESCO. In the later ones, they're usually just, they're like secretaries or nurses. But here she is, she goes to work for UNESCO, and her boyfriend doesn't want her to leave because it's in Europe. Then she says, well, I do love you, but I have to have a career. And her father's against it, too. But she goes to work for UNESCO. She loses the boyfriend who isn't willing to wait. But then she meets a really nice guy who works for UNESCO in Rome. And, you know, it's a happy ending. The only problem I have with all of these comics is they always they always end with the girl getting married. Mm. You know, there's so much more to life as we know now. Yeah. Know? Well, that was just reflective of the time. But it's a romance, after all. Yeah, yeah. You, you do want to you do want to figure out who who loves who and mm-hmm. if they ever get together. It's the fun of it. You also brought in this really interesting prose excerpt from Miss America. It's called Colorblind. I want to let you talk about it because I actually did not know about this history about the fact that they they had to put a two page prose piece within comics. There Tell was us about a that. rule. I'm not sure exactly the exact facts of it. But all comics had to include two pages of prose. So they would include stories. So this story, again, is is so unusual for the times. It's about a Chinese-American girl born in America. And she just wants to be accepted as an American girl. But she's the only Chinese girl in her class. Her father has the Chinese restaurant. And they're mean to her. They're racist. They make horrible racist statements. And... Finally, though, she saves her father's life from these awful criminals who are ready to shoot him and becomes a heroine, and they accept her. But it's just, you know, it's a simple story, but it's so unusual for something that that long ago. Absolutely. That's fascinating. And if you look at the piece itself, it's called Colorblind, and it has, it's drawn by Christopher... Chris Rule. Rule, Yes, Chris Rule, who is Trina's, like, one of her favorite cartoonists, as she's described. But you see sort of... This regular girl with, like, black hair, blue sweater, a plaid skirt, and then behind her is sort of this shadow or just another aspect of herself, it seems like. More Chinese garb, right? It's the traditional Chinese garb. Yeah. And that signifies the way they thought of her. They saw her as, you know, that's all they saw was the traditional Chinese. Yeah. And who saves her dad, Mm -hmm. which is really sweet. It's great. It's like, it's such a classic Marvel story, though, in a lot of ways, because it it is about that, is about the many sides of a character, but the fact that this person who's really unexpected 
and who is very vulnerable and and who who is considered an outcast can kind of rise up. Yes. Are there any other like female creators or characters that you think like kind of live within the 40s and 50s that we haven't covered yet? Well, you haven't talked about Lily Renee. Okay. But Lily, of course, did not draw for Timely. Okay. Her friend Fran Hopper drew for Timely. Lily and Fran, both in the beginning, in the very early 40s, like 1942, they were working for Fiction House. Fiction House and Timely are my two favorite Golden Age comic book publishers. During the war, of course, all the guys were off fighting, and the Comics publishers needed artists, so they started hiring women. So really, they were hiring more women at that point than they had ever hired before. And the two companies that hired the most women were Timely and Fiction House. What about Fran? So Fran Hopper was her friend. Okay, so Lily started at Fiction House. She was the only woman at the time. Then Fran shows up in 1942. Fran, in the beginning, she was a, a college student going to art school. She thought this was just going to be a summer job, but she liked it so much and she did so well that she stayed on. And there were a number of others. Ruth Atkinson also worked for Fiction House. And so then after the war, when the women were sent back to the kitchen and the boys got their jobs back, Fran and Ruth Atkinson both went to Marvel. Oh, wow. Fantastic. Well, that's really interesting because then we see, like, I guess, as we get kind of towards the end of the 50s into the 60s, you have someone like Marie Severin, who I would say is like one of the most prolific female creators in Marvel Comics history. Marie, unfortunately, passed last year. I know. For us, that was a really, really sad moment because of how much she had contributed. But not many people know about how much she's done and, and what she's worked on. Well, you know, when she first went to work for Marvel... She wasn't drawing comics. Mm -hmm. She was correcting other people's pages, erasing the pencil lines, all that that kind of stuff. But then, I think it was 1966, when the Marvel Renaissance was really hitting, Esquire did a piece on Marvel comics, on the Marvel superheroes. Yeah. And they wanted, they asked at Marvel if somebody would illustrate it. And the guys were all too busy drawing the Hulk. They didn't want to do it. So Marie (laughs) said, I'll do it. And she illustrated the Esquire piece. And was Martin Goodman still there? I think it was Martin Goodman. Well, I think it was Martin Goodman. Okay. But it could have been someone else who said said to Stan, hey, she can draw. Hire her. So that's when she started drawing. Yeah, wow. she's and she's done everything. She's done. She was like an inker. She's a colorist. She's drawn a lot of issues a before. A lot of things, yes. <laughs> In particular. Yeah. And then, of course, there's creators like Marie. There's also Flo Steinberg, who worked for Stanley for many, many years. And then, of course, you also knew. Tell us a bit about Fabulous Flo. Fabulous Flo and I were very good friends. I met her in 1960, either late 68 or early 69. I can't remember exactly. I had been taken to meet Wally Wood by Art Spiegelman, who you may know his name, mm-hmm. Art Spiegelman. Yeah, of course. Okay, so he took me to meet Wally Wood because Wally Wood was one of my childhood idols wow. from EC Comics. And Wally, Woody, and I made friends, and Woody, he said, let's all go out to dinner, my then boyfriend and I, and Woody, and he brought along this beautiful woman with prematurely graying hair named Flo. And He didn't introduce her as fabulous Flo Steinberg. He just said, this is Flo. I think he did not want to share the limelight. But she was talking about how she worked for Marvel. 
And at a certain point, my then boyfriend, who was maybe a sharper tack than me, said, are you fabulous, Flo Steinberg? And she said, well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and we became friends. And she she was just as, I guess, humble then. <laughs> she yes, was always. On. Yes. W- was she just as like quick-witted and have a sharp tongue back then? Or was she a bit more quiet? No, she was always quiet, really. Really? Yeah. When she used to come around the offices here, because she worked... God, until a few years ago, she'd be coming to the offices. But she'd be yelling at us quite a bit. She'd hug us, and then she'd yell at us for having our work in late or something. I mean, my favorite part about Flo was that she had a computer, but she never turned it on. No, she didn't use computers. She was my only friend that I had to phone her. Well, she covered her monitor and post-it notes for all the notes for her proofreading. Because at the... Her last few years here, she proofread for us. So it was just like post-it notes of proofreading. (laughs) And every once in a while, because we sat near her um, before they shifted her away from us because we were too loud. But every once in a while, she would stand up and be like, and like, come over to me or someone. I'd be like, can you quiet down? And we'd be like, oh, I'm so sorry, Flo. (laughs) She would come and like drop a PDF or lettering proof of a comic. And she'd throw it it on our desk and she'd be like, this was garbage. (laughs) And like, oh. We tried, Flo. We're so sorry. I never knew that part of her because, of course, I didn't work with her. Yeah. Well, it was because there was such a, you know, for us, too, there was such this this aura around fabulous Flo, and then you meet her, and she's really everything that you kind of imagined and hoped. But she was also a part of the quote-unquote glory days of Marvel in the sense that when, when Stan built the image of the bullpen and Flo was really his quote-unquote gal Friday, as they called it, but... She was, you know, one of the most important women in comics, we would say, even though she wasn't necessarily making comics for us. She, she was actually just did doing some it. writing. It was yes. just completely uncredited. But like on the on the Millie the Models, there would be fashion pages mm-hmm. and it would say something like, you know, Millie wears this high collared sheath dress decorated with pansies you know and Mar- <laughs> Flo would have written that coffee. oh really yeah, yeah. okay because I know she later on she did um she did big apple comics and yes. she did comics on well, her she own, did but... she wanted to do one underground comic yeah oh that's great I will say that Flo was like that that when I first started working here um I didn't really know the history of comics as a you know a girl that grew up in the 1990s sort of comics was not the thing that was handed to me but I met her, and then I was like, oh, there's history here. And it was through her that it really made me think and deep dive into, like, the history of comics, the history of Marvel. And think about, you know, we think about 80 years, and it's so easy to say 80. But until you really start thinking about there were voices and people and until you get the chance to meet them. So I was very honored to uh, have the opportunity to meet her because I think it's important that we know the people that have experienced the history instead of just reading it in a book. Yeah. I love that Flo just never made it a big deal. Yeah. She's like, whatever, it was a job. I remember she had a Wikipedia page, and I was like, she has a Wikipedia page. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, so, it's so great. Well, because we had, like, Ralph Macchio, who's a former editor. Like, he I knew had. Ralph, of you course. remember Ralph, right? Yeah. His um, uh, letter from Flo. People, like, kept all of them. They're like, Flo, we have letters. Like, we have letters from you. And she's like, I don't know why you keep that trash. <laughs> like, she was something real, real special. Um, very much missed. I'm sort of interested. What drew you to writing about history? Was it sort of like becoming part of the comic community and then seeing it that there was not a history of women in comics? There was no history of women in comics. The guys kept saying women didn't draw comics. Women had never drawn comics. I knew this was nonsense, so I had to show 
And like, what was the steps? Obviously, you know, nowadays we have the internet and there's tons of research resources, including lots of yours. But what was that process of discovering, of rediscovering these women? Well, in the beginning, it was actually very hard. Back in the um, in the Stone Age, when we didn't have the computer yet, the internet yet, the first book that I wrote, I co-wrote with Catherine Ironwood. It was called Women and the Comics. And junk it. If you get a hold of it, keep it because it scares his hen's teeth, but don't use it for reference or for research because so much in there is wrong, not because of us, but because our research was was faulty. I mean, the things that we researched, for instance, there was this one group called the, they were the Southern California Illustrators Group, and they were fans, and they wrote, they put out newsletters, each one about a different illustrator. And what they wrote about Nell Brinkley was completely wrong. Her politics, they got wrong. They said she was married to the same man her whole life. She was not. She divorced him. They even got her hair color wrong. So um, in the days before the Internet, very, very hard to do research. So I have, uh, if you could say one thing about what people don't know about women in the 50s in comics, like what would that be? Besides that there are women in the comics, like there are girl comics, or is there like... Something. Well, you know, it's really interesting. I think that in the 80s and 90s, and maybe even into the beginning of, of the 21st century, editors and publishers kept saying, girls don't read comics, girls don't read comics, girls don't read comics. So they didn't publish any comics for girls. They were old enough to remember. This was like a collective amnesia that all these guys are saying girls don't read comics when girls had read comics. You know, there was a time when more girls were reading comics than boys. So I really wonder this 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 myth of girls don't read comics. I wonder if that really wasn't based on not wanting girls in their club. It is one of those things where I think there's this assumption. You're talking about the collective amnesia, but also just this assumption that are like, well, they're not here anymore, so we can kind of do whatever we want. And now that we are here, we're sort of we're back. I guess. We're back. We're back. We're back. People are mad that we're sort of creating real women once again and we're not sort of and yet it's truly us kind of going back to what made comics so great. Would you agree agree with that? When women <laughs> draw comics, they draw themselves really. I don't mm. mean literally like Darby Mills and Gladys Parker, but they're drawing they know themselves. They're women. So they're drawing Mm -hmm. real women, and we do like clothes. We do. So we put our our characters in something that that they can really wear, something that's really cute, Mm -hmm. but something that also they can wear without the top riding up on them or or without, you know, breaking their high heels when they run. And because it's, it's... what we know, it's what we see. Right, right. It also speaks to, like, who they are, like, what their personality is all about, too, what you drape them in. But it does feel like it is interesting. I'm thinking about it, and you talking about June sort of drawing herself effectively as Miss Fury, but that there were all these women having these incredible, making their own sort of impressions on our Marvel heroes. And that's kind of, and sort of kind of come full circle, because it's, it's happening kind of again now. I mean, yeah, we look at Miss Marvel and Yusana and like I think, you know, history has a habit of repeating itself and telling different stories. I mean, for so long the story was that girls didn't read comics and now we're back 
to tell everyone and what you've been doing for so long, Trina, is so important that history will eventually get out and people will know about it. And, and I think that's important. Yeah, that's why we're doing this. But this kind of history repeating itself, I'm cool with. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> let's keep doing it. Yeah, let's, let's keep doing it and have Trina just keep writing some comics, too, for us. I shall. <laughs> we talked a little bit about you starting history, right? But what's amazing about you, Trina, is you're still writing and mm-hmm. you're still making books. Like, what's going on with you, like, right now? Well, you know, I love writing. I love it. You know, how can I stop? You don't, you don't retire when you're doing something you love. If I wasn't writing, I'd be writing. that's great what are you working on now okay so my next book that is coming out as you know i do histories of women who have not been written about so this is about a woman named gladys parker who drew this great character called mopsy and her period was 1927 to 1965 and it just so happened just like tarpey mills looked exactly like miss fury that Gladys Parker looked exactly like Mopsy. And both both Mopsy and Gladys were adorable, really, really cute. And the newspapers, she was really a character. She was a fashion designer as well as a cartoonist. And by the 1940s, she had packed up her two black cats and moved to Hollywood, where she was making clothes for people like Barbara Stanwyck and Hedy Lamarr and Dorothy Lamour. She drove around town at that point in a Ferrari that she had customized with a picture of Mopsy on it. (laughs) That's so cool. (laughs) So that's the next book, and you'll love it. It's loaded with pictures, and she was so cute, and her comics are so cute. Well, Trina, thank you so much for your time and your knowledge. And um, for those of you listening out there, please go look up Trina Robbins. She's amazing. She uh, is so prolific, has written so much, and you will learn so much about comics history and also just read some of her awesome stories as well. And where where can people find you, actually? Do you have any? I'm on Facebook. They can oh, great. Ask, they can ask to friend me, and I will friend them. You deserve a fan page, Trina. I do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks so much for joining us. Um, We will continue our story uh, about the 80th anniversary and more with comics soon. So stay tuned. Thanks again to Trina for joining us. Uh, We talk even more with her about the 1970s and an upcoming podcast. So stay tuned for that. Uh, Make sure you guys go check out all Trina's books because she's lovely and amazing. And so very talented. Yes, she is. We are very happy to have her story in join us. Also, some more exciting 80th stuff. We have Lorraine Sink joining us again to talk all about the iconic female characters of the 1940s, including the OG Black Widow. We've got Miss America, the Blonde Phantom, and Patsy Walker. So kick it off, Lorraine. Thank you, ladies. I am back. I'm here. And I'm going to be talking today about who I think are the most important women of the golden age of comics. What the heck is the golden age of Marvel Comics? It's something people say. What does that mean? It means the era really in the 1940s and the 1950s, way back when comics were not like they are today. Sometimes comics were these big anthologies that had all kinds of different storylines in them. They might be a Western. They might be a war story. They might be like a tale of suspense, something weird, sci-fi, all kinds of stuff, and buckets of romance comics. So I'm going to be telling you guys about Miss America, Patsy Walker, and the Blonde Phantom, some of the most important women 
from the golden age of comics, in my personal opinion, who they were, how they made their mark, and what makes them such surprisingly dynamic characters, especially for the time. So if you guys listened to the last time I was on, I talked a lot about Marvel Comics number one with Namor the Submariner's first appearance, where he introduced Princess Fen and Dorma. But there was a Another new anti-hero in town, she was the original Black Widow, and I want to touch on her briefly before we get into the rest of our amazing heroines here. So she was introduced in Mystic Comics number four in 1940, and she was really the first official anti-hero. She was the first female character given her own story, and her name was very auspiciously clairvoyant. First name Claire, last name Voyant. And she became the Black Widow by being murdered and then the devil in a very sultry cape and nothing else number offered her the ability to come back and to avenge her own death. And then, she, you know, she went on to do her own sort of nefarious and sort of torn things um, as an anti-hero. So she was our first real leading character in the Marvel Universe uh, with her own title, but we were soon to get a much more altruistic, heartfelt, little sweetheart of a superhero, Ms. America. Miss America was introduced in Marvel Mystery Comics number 49 in 1943. I love Miss America because she is such an altruistic 1940s ideal of what the best gal next door would be. So let's also give this little context. What was happening in 1943? Oh, a big old war. It was World War II, and there was a sentiment that women can help and women can enter the workforce and women can do more. Enter Miss America. She was created by Otto Binder and artist Al Gabriel. And she sort of classically says in her origin story, if only I were a man, I could do so much if I had a man's strength. The world needs someone. So she already has this sort of ideal, altruistic view of the world. She wants to help her fellow man. Of course, she shows up at this lab that her uncle owns and sees that this guy gets hit with lightning. He gets power. She decides that's my Thing. I want superpowers so then I can do the things that men can do. She gets struck and gets herself some superpowers. But I think it's this wonderful thing that she has this really actionable sort of journey where she says, I want to help mankind. She decides that she wants to be a hero and finds a way to do it. Next in chronology and also my heart, uh, Patsy Walker she was introduced in Miss America magazine number two in 1944. Yes, that Miss America. So you guys might recognize Patsy Walker because she's Hellcat in our modern comics. She has one of the longest Marvel histories of any of our characters, and it is extremely rich. Patsy was born in romance comics, so she was living her teenage years trying to be a teenage starlet, dreaming after the cute boy next door, Buzz Baxter and having to battle for him against her worst frenemy, Hetty Wolf. But the whole time, 
Patsy really wanted to be a superhero. She was super driven by it. She ended up getting divorced. She sought out the Avengers. She was trying to work with them. She reclaims an old costume that belonged to the original character, the cat, which gave her superpowers, and she became the hero Hellcat. It's also just really fun that her ex-husband became Mad Dog. She's Hellcat. They fight like cats and dogs. Patsy is such an inspiration to me because she was very well defined by her ambition to become a hero and to be willing to reinvent herself. And she's always been a really self-possessed character, even though she has had a lot of faults and failures. And the last character I want to talk about is the blonde Phantom. She was introduced in All Select Comics number 11 in 1946. So what do we have between superheroes and romantic leads? What's the in-between? Might I give you the Blonde Phantom? I love the Blonde Phantom so much because she is such a smart character. She always kind of is one step ahead of everyone in the story. And she always has sort of a meta view of it. Like, why doesn't anyone realize that I am a secretary by day and a secret agent by night? And the only difference in anything I do is I put on a tiny mask over my eyes. So she was indeed Louise Grant, a secretary by day at the OSS, a secret service type operation working for a guy named Mark Mason. Mark Mason, of course, being sort of a super agent type dreamboat who she would pine for as a secretary and then work as his super secret co-operative as the blonde phantom. She works for this guy. She pines over him. She dreams of the day he'll love her back. But at the same time, she is foiling all the crimes and basically handing him over all of the wins and being like, here you go. Call it in. I did all the work. Ladies, relatable. Am I right? Wink. And then finally, in 1989, one of my favorite things. She returns to comics working with She-Hulk at the DA's office. And I love, love, love this comic book style because if you've ever read any She-Hulk comic books from the 80s, she's like very tall and statuesque and like a volleyball player in vibe. And they keep Louise Grant in this very 1940s, like cutesy, soft lines, petite, curvy, sort of shape and she just looks so out of time and she kind of serves in a lot of ways as not only She-Hulk's partner in crime but also sometimes her damsel and I live for their friendship so if you're not really ready to go back in time and read all the comics where she is just solving crimes for her boyfriend essentially <laughs> definitely go and read the She-Hulk comics where she is hardcore BFFing with She-Hulk because it is so wonderful. And also they take out the mole man who is the ultimate milady. He's just like, I want a wife. And they're like, no, that's not how this works. Consent. It's great. All around these ladies have all broken the mold. They're all incredible. They're wonderful reads. So go out, read them, enjoy, and happy golden age. Happy Marvel 80th anniversary. Thanks again, Lorraine, for joining us. Make sure you guys tune in again next month. Oh my God, guys. 
We are also very excited because we are getting ready to head out to L.A. for Marvel Studios' Captain Marvel world premiere live stream on the red carpet. World premiere. Guys, it's Monday, March 4th. I'm really excited. Can you tell? Real excited. This is Judy's, like, dream come true. It is totally my dream come true. The movie is coming out, and she's also going to be there. Yes. (laughs) Make sure you guys go check out the live stream at marvel.com slash Captain Marvel Live. Plus, you can check it out on Marvel's YouTube, Marvel's Facebook, and Marvel's Twitter. Lorraine Sink will be hosting along with Angelique Rocher, Tamara Krinsky, and we have a new host joining, J.D. Heyman, who is the deputy editor at People. Plus, this is the most exciting part. It's the most exciting and the most important. I mean, obviously. <laughs> also a little bit more, a little stressful, but I'm, I'm totally ready for it. Uh, Women on Marvel will be on the red carpet. Uh, we will not be a part of the live stream, but we'll be doing interviews with all the amazing talent and crew and other epic women joining us on the carpet. So that'll be a video you and audio piece you guys can look forward to in the upcoming weeks. This is really special because this film is so meaningful, obviously to you and me, Judy, on a very personal level, but also just to women of Marvel because of what it's done for our fan base, for the Marvel fan base and the female fan base. And it's like actually coming together. So this is a big moment. We're going to be hanging, like we're going to be talking to people, but I feel like we're going to be very emotional and giddy and and not professional at all. So uh, we apologize in advance. Yeah. (laughs) But it's going to be a, a magical moment because it's all of us coming together to celebrate this amazing character and the fans that have come up around her and just everyone who's ready to be a fan of Captain Marvel with us. Yeah, so make sure you guys get your tickets for the official premiere on March 8th. And it's also International Women's Day. Lots of things going on. Lots of Captain Marvel celebrations. So it's a good time. Good time to be a fan and a Woman of Marvel listener. Yeah. Tweet at us if you got photos of yourself in Captain Marvel gear. If you have costumes. Anything. I want to see them. We want to see them. Show them. Send them to us. And that's it. We'll see you guys next time. This is Marvel. Your universe. <laughs>